This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Any fair-minded person looking at this would say that some terrible mistakes were made. Hello and welcome back to The Bunker. I'm Andrew Harrison. Spying, wrote John le Carré, is waiting. Le Carré captured the grimy, down-at-heel flavour of British intelligence during the Cold War by emphasising its tedium, its lack of glamour and its compromised morals. It was the antithesis of the James Bond fantasy. But as Le Carré's world recedes and a new intelligence landscape emerges where technology, disinformation and asymmetrical rivalries determine the winners, do most of us really understand what intelligence work means anymore? Are spying and intelligence still about waiting or do they need to become more proactive and indeed open? to face the threats of the 21st century. Amy Ziegert is an expert on the American intelligence community. She's a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, and she's just published Spies, Lies and Algorithms, The History and Future of American Intelligence. It is a fascinating and sobering read. I really enjoyed it, and I'm delighted to have her here as our guest today. Hi, Amy. How are you doing? I'm good, Andrew. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm guessing this is not the first bunker you've ever been in. As a intelligence, <laughs> each person. bunker is different. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and yet in some ways the same. And um, the, the book is absolutely fascinating. It's the story of how American intelligence got to where it is, with astonishing things. I had no idea that George Washington ran a fake bakery to deceive the British during the Revolutionary War to pretend that there were more troops than there actually were. I'm so glad you picked up that little tidbit. That is one of the favorite things that I discovered in writing the book was George Washington was an avid spy master, but the use of fake French bread, right, was quite ingenious. Who would know that French things could thwart the British? I mean, there's, there's also <laughs> the fact that America took this attitude to intelligence that they would assemble an intelligence agency for a particular war. And then when it was done, just like take it to pieces again. We don't need this anymore because we imagine that states require an ongoing intelligence facility. And America just like treated them as these kind of temporary institutions. We did. And it was a very similar way to which we treated a standing military. It goes back to the, the founding of the country. We were very, you know, as a country, we were suspicious of federal government and of standing militaries. And we're relative newcomers to the international espionage world. So European countries had intelligence organizations going back centuries. And the United States, until World War II, really struggled to have a permanent peacetime intelligence uh, apparatus. It's also about where the American intelligence setup could be going. And, and one of the problems that you talk about today is the fact that people generally don't understand what intelligence is. The CIA has a budget of like $85 billion or something, and it's barely discussed in the, in the public square. And yet people are kind of – their understanding of this is conditioned by what you call spytainment. People think that Homeland and Jason Bourne are like documentaries. Can you explain what's happening there and what it, what it means for intelligence policy? Yeah. So, Andrew, one of the reasons I wrote the book is I started years ago when I was teaching a class at UCLA in the heart of Hollywood. 
And I asked my students, teaching a class about intelligence, and I asked my students in a poll what they knew about U.S. intelligence agencies, and I found they didn't know much of anything. And what they did know, they learned from watching spy-themed television shows and movies. And the most interesting thing I found was that there were uh, there was a statistically significant result. The people who watched a lot of spy-themed entertainment were far more likely to support things like waterboarding and rendition and all sorts of very controversial intelligence interrogation techniques. And then I did national polls in the United States, and I found the same thing. And so the more I looked, the more I found that spy-themed entertainment appeared to be influencing mass public opinion, as well as uh, elite policymaking about intelligence. One of the incredible things I found was when Leon Panetta was uh, confirmed at his confirmation hearings to be the CIA director, the senators in the Senate Intelligence Committee actually asked him about a fictional plot line of a ticking time bomb scenario and what he would do that was completely unrealistic and ripped from the pages of a Hollywood movie script. It was actually from 24, wasn't it? It's like the nuclear bomb at the center of Los Angeles, the ticking time bomb. And you point out in the book that never once has there ever been a single ticking time bomb scenario that any of America's agencies have actually had to deal with. That's right. And yet the senators took it seriously and they asked Leon Panetta this question and Panetta answered it seriously. And the press dubbed it the Jack Bauer exception to Panetta's opposition to the use of enhanced interrogation techniques that many regard as torture. It's astonishing. I I do remember reading Tom Clancy had been called in for real world terrorist advice after 9-11. Does this run through policymaking? It does run through policymaking. And the question is, does it matter? Right. And so one of the things I found is that the more that policymakers and the public get their information from Hollywood, and I like spy themed movies as much as the next person, but the more that they get their information from fiction, the less they understand the facts. And I think there's a tendency to believe that U.S. intelligence agencies are omnipotent when in many cases they're actually quite weak. We tend to think that the intelligence agencies are all powerful, but exceptionally well informed as well. That they have, uh, they have people everywhere, and they have eyes everywhere. But you're saying they're exceptionally weak. What, what, what do you mean by that? So the, the craft of intelligence is inherently incredibly difficult. And so, with my students at Stanford, I do an exercise to try to send this home, where I ask them to predict their own vacation, sort of six months from now, and then I ask how many of them actually are not they think will not do what they say they're going to do. And of course, a number of hands go up and I ask them why. And you can imagine the answers. They have different vacation plans. They have different resources, events, COVID, war, things get in the way. And then I say, well, now your task is to predict the vacation plans of the person sitting next to you. And they sort of look at the person sitting next to them and they think, oh, you know, that's a lot harder. And then I say, well, now your challenge is to predict the vacation plans of the person sitting next to you And that person is doing everything they can to deceive you. That's intelligence. Think about it's the best case scenario when we're predicting ourselves. Nobody knows you better than you. And that's hard enough. Now imagine you're trying to do the job of predicting what Vladimir Putin or Xi Jinping is going to do. It's hard. I promise I'll stop asking you about spy tamer, but I've got one more thing to ask you, which is, is there a piece of it that you think gets it right or gets closest to the truth? Everybody here is watching Slow Horses and saying how much they like it. (laughs) That's one of my favorite shows. I think in terms of the movies and television shows that I've seen that really capture a lot of what intelligence is and the bravery of intelligence officers, the movie Argo is one of my favorites. So it's the 
uh, inspired by real events, but it's the story of how the CIA got Americans trapped after the Iranian revolution that were being hidden in the Canadian ambassador's house. It were incredible, courageous uh, actions on the part of our Canadian friends. Uh, and uh, they actually posed, the C- CIA officers posed as a movie team to make a movie, got into Tehran and whisked the American hostages out. That is a true story. Now, the movie makes it takes some creative license and has a very scary ending that all ends up uh, working out well. But the gist of it is right. And you get the sense of how creative and how brave uh, this particular set of intelligence officers were to, in order to uh, to get to success. Usually, you know, there's a high degree of failure in these kinds of um, types of operations. A lot of the book is is quite rightly about test cases when when the intelligence agencies get it right and when they get it wrong why they get it right and wrong, and also what is learned from those things. I want to ask you about a cluster of specific cases, which are all around Iraq. There's the failure to spot the 9-11 plot. There's mistakenly arguing that Saddam Hussein possessed chemical, biological, and nuclear weapons. And then there was the success, which is finally locating and killing Osama bin Laden. Without asking you to recite the entire 9-11 commission report, firstly, 9-11, how did US intelligence services fail to spot that this was coming? Because George Tenet, the CIA director, had named Osama bin Laden as a threat to the U.S. as early as 1998, hadn't he? He had, and I spent five years looking at why the CIA and the FBI failed to stop 9-11. So this is something I care deeply about. You ask any American where they were on 9-11, they remember exactly where they were. And so I started researching, this is another book I wrote, but I started researching just this question on 9-11. I knew this was going to be something that was going to take a significant portion of my professional career. And what I found was the story is even worse, I think, than the 9-11 Commission portrays it, which is that both of these agencies, the CIA and the FBI, recognized the terrorist threat years before 9-11. They recognized the need for them to adapt, to change dramatically what they were doing, to coordinate better, to share information better. And they failed to get the reforms they knew they needed. So to give you an example I found that there were a dozen unclassified major studies and commissions, and they agreed on the major intelligence problems after the end of the Cold War. If you look at the decade between the fall of the Soviet Union and 9-11, there was a widespread recognition among national security experts and intelligence officers that these two agencies and others needed to radically change to adapt to a new uh, geopolitical landscape, and they failed. They failed miserably. And I found 23 opportunities for those two agencies to have possibly penetrated the 9-11 plot. And they went 0 for 23. And so the single biggest reason why we failed to prevent 9-11 wasn't what the Bush administration did or didn't do. It wasn't what the Clinton administration did or didn't do. It was the failure of our intelligence agencies to adapt from the end of one threat environment to another. What would that adaptation have entailed? Would it have been simply joining the dots, being more open and communicative within what you always refer to as the intelligence community? Well, it consists of a bunch of different things. But one of the key findings, as you know, was this inability to connect the dots. By the way, intelligence officers hate that phrase (laughs) because, as they say, it suggests that there are dots to be connected and there's a picture that's clear, right, that the real picture is much worse. But there there was this striking inability to know what we knew. So I'll give you one example. The FBI itself didn't know what different offices in the FBI knew. Three different FBI field offices in the weeks before 9-11 had pieces of the plot. One knew had arrested the so-called 20th hijacker who was at flight schools and had suspicious activity. 
that's in Minneapolis. One in uh, Arizona had written a memo saying, I-, I have reason to believe bin Laden is sending terrorists to the U.S. to train to fly. That was the, the uh, Phoenix memo, the now infamous Phoenix memo. And in New York, there was a squad looking for two suspected al-Qaeda operatives that they believed had entered the United States and needed to be found. All three of these offices had pieces of the plot. None of them knew what the others were doing. Nobody knew that there were all these different pieces scattered just across the FBI. Forget communicating with the CIA. The FBI didn't communicate with the FBI. So basically, to Donald Rumsfeld's known knowns, unknown unknowns, that's a problem of unknown knowns. Things that we knew, but we didn't know we knew, which just like fries the mind. Were changes made post 9-11 to do something about that? Significant changes were made. There's good news and bad news. After 9-11, we saw pretty dramatic changes in the U.S. intelligence community. We saw changes in how the FBI operated. We saw changes in the CIA's operation. And of course, we had this major reform creating a director of national intelligence right? So a, um, an organization to try to coordinate the, the other agencies of the U.S. intelligence community. So we now have 18 different agencies in the federal government in the United States. And those changes, many of them were, were significant. But the challenge is the more you hardwire our intelligence agencies for one threat, the less able it is to adapt to a new threat. So what we've had in the last 20 years is increasing capabilities of fighting terrorists around the world, But what we haven't been able to do is adapt to the rise of the China threat of emerging technologies and uh, the return of great power competition. I often tell my friends in the U.S. government, if you can't tell the difference between what the Pentagon is doing and what the CIA is doing, we've got a problem. Because the more CIA officers are hunting terrorists on battlefields, the less they are gathering. And the primary mission of the CIA is to gather and analyze intelligence to prevent strategic surprises like 9-11. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I mentioned the the Dolly MD question. Were the CIA effectively complicit in an attempt to deceive the world about the existence of Dolly MD, or were they basically railroaded by the Bush White House? I realize that's a very simplistic way of putting it. Well, I think it's actually neither of those two. I think when I look at intelligence failures, and each failure has a different story, right? The story of 9-11 is failure really to coordinate. The failure of Iraq WMD was a failure of collection, and it was a failure of analysis. So I think the, the as far as I can tell from looking at the declassified record, what we saw was tremendous groupthink within the intelligence community. So the assumption was, and remember, Saddam Hussein had actually had weapons of mass destruction programs before. And what happened after the first Gulf War was that U.S. intelligence agencies underestimated his capabilities. And so what did they do? They overcorrected. So fast forward to 2002, 2003, they overestimated Saddam's capabilities. So nobody stopped to ask, 
What are alternative explanations for what they're learning? What if we're wrong, for example? And I would say one other thing I think that's come to light in the past several years, which is elements of the U.S. intelligence community did raise doubts. They did dissent and they were overruled. So the Department of Energy, for example, has an intelligence cap- intelligence unit, and they're the ones that raise real questions about the aluminum tubes that were presented by U.S. intelligence agencies. And that dissent was really downplayed and, and relegated to footnotes. And as a result of these and other failures with Iraq WMD, the U.S. intelligence community radically overhauled the process by which they write these national intelligence estimates so that dissenting views are more carefully highlighted as opposed to buried. A lot of our listeners are big, wet liberals like me who are kind of innately suspicious of intelligence services in general. And, you know, the CIA in particular, the CIA does have a bad PR uh, image, you know, everything from the Bay of Pigs to rendition and torture of terrorist subjects without trial. Is it fair to say that the CIA has effectively operated with impunity for most of its life? (laughs) No, I would not agree with that. Let me say also, before you and your listeners think I'm just a a cheerleader for the Central Intelligence Agency, when I wrote my 9-11 book, I had to hire a First Amendment lawyer because I was so critical of the CIA and the FBI. So I try to call the balls and strikes as I see them. I think one of the misunderstandings about the CIA, and I recognize the CIA has had some very dark chapters in its history. But one of the things I think that's not fully appreciated is how much more oversight there is over intelligence today than there was in the 1960s and the 1970s. There used to be no congressional oversight committees over intelligence, none before the 1970s. And oversight of intelligence was relegated to a handful of legislators who didn't ask questions because they didn't want to know the answers. That's never a good recipe for success or for the protection of privacy and and civil liberties. And that changed after a lot of these scandals came to light with foreign assassination plots and the abuse of American civil liberties in the 1970s. And so there is much more oversight today than there was in the past. I don't think Most people who, even uh, on the liberal side of Congress, who are engaged in oversight of the intelligence community would say that the CIA acts with impunity. Is it possible to have an effective and an ethical intelligence service at the same time? You know, I've asked uh, folks inside the U.S. intelligence community how they think about ethics and what their ethical dilemmas are. And one of the analysts I've talked to, a woman named Gina Bennett, who was famous for, she was the first analyst at the CIA who identified Osama bin Laden as a threat, as a terrorist threat back in 1993. And what Gina, and Gina teaches a class on ethics and intelligence at Georgetown. And she said, you know, we think about ethics every day. I found that interesting. I didn't think intelligence officers thought about ethics every day. She said, whether you decide to collect, continue collecting intelligence about a particular person or whether you don't, every decision we make involves ethical trade-offs. Now, is there a systematic way in which these agencies actually reason through the ethical dilemmas? No, it's a personal decision that, that individual officers make. But, they, but many of them really do think about ethics on a daily basis. You talk in the book as well about how the various agencies have, have found themselves having to be more open to have presence on social media. Obviously, they're secret agencies, but to kind of show they're working insofar as they can. Do you think the culture of the uh, intelligence agencies is changing? I think it's changing, but it's not changing fast enough. 
These secret agencies have lived for decades behind security clearances and guards and secured facilities. And that's not the world we're in today. I'm not saying they need to be open about everything. I recognize the need to protect sources and methods. People will die, right, if their identities are revealed and they're betraying uh, their foreign government to aid the United States. But this is a different world. It's a world where anybody with a cell phone can collect and analyze and disseminate intelligence. It's a world where people who don't have security clearances need information about threats. For for example, American voters need intelligence about foreign election threats, interference in American elections. And so these agencies have got to get out of their secretive crouch and be much more open about who they are, what they do, what they don't do, and how they can work with open source intelligence, unclassified intelligence, to deliver insight to policymakers. Because their business at the end of the day is actually not secrets. Their business is insight, helping policymakers understand the future better and faster than adversaries do. That is one of the things that really comes out of the book, the idea that if you're the person in the street like me and you think the intelligence game is all about secrets, it's actually a tiny percentage. What it's about is, I'm not going to say connecting the dots because I know you don't like it, but it's about putting the stuff together in a kind of analytical package that can make it make sense. Exactly. And I think, you know, secrets will always matter. There's no comparison for actually listening in to what Vladimir Putin is saying, for example. But that unclassified information, what we can get, we're seeing it in the war in Ukraine today. Imagine, you know, the commercial satellite capabilities to track Russian troop movements on the ground. It's incredible. So secrets are mattering less and less. And where is insight coming from? The ability to harness mass quantities of information around the world. That's all publicly available. This is a fundamentally different ballgame. And that's really the theme of the book, which is that we're in a world where emerging technologies are transforming every aspect of the insights business. And if the CIA and other agencies in the United States intelligence community can't adapt to that world, they will fail again. The book is full of fantastic instances of that, such as the um, the virus that's introduced to the uh, the centrifuges in Iranian nuclear plants, which actually breaks them in a way that it seems that, that makes it look like they're just malfunctioning of their own accord, and actually, you know, sets back the Iranian nuclear program by a couple of years. It's quite astonishing the way these things can be done. That one particular episode does feel like it came out of a Mission Impossible movie. The code was so sophisticated that. It looked like everything was normal as the centrifuges were programmed to spin up very quickly and then slow down very quickly, which destroyed them. So this was a remarkable moment. And Mike Hayden, the former CIA director, wrote that it had a whiff of 1945 about it. And by that, he meant this was really a new moment where a cyber weapon was used with physical effect on a different country. And it was going to change how cyber warfare was going to be conducted. And he was right. We're now living in this cyber era, uh, which operates by really different rules. And I'll just say quickly two things. For American history, two things have protected our country for most of our, our existence. Our geography, we're blessed by having two big oceans that separate us from bad neighborhoods, and military power. In cyberspace, geography and military power do not protect you. Those, right, we're all in bad cyber neighborhoods, and the most powerful countries in cyberspace are simultaneously usually the most vulnerable countries in cyberspace because we rely on digital connectivity for so much. And so, this new landscape, the cyber landscape, 
isn't just a different weapon. It plays by different rules. It operates by different dynamics. Well, that brings me to the most conspicuous act of warfare of the new era, which was the interference in the 2016 presidential election, which is pretty much established definitely did happen. Donald Trump falls back on no collusion rather than it didn't happen. Do we know the extent to which Russians attempt to hack the 2020 election? Or is that is it like a kind of a one and done and then move on to the next iteration? I think we don't know. And we often don't know things about historical events. We're still learning about the Cuban Missile Crisis from 1962. So the story's never fully written. But I think what we do know from what, what we've learned so far for about 2016 is that Russia invented the playbook and the playbook is changing quickly. So Russia's playbook was multi-pronged. It wasn't just interfere in the election. It was polarize American society from within by using American technology platforms uh, in a fraudulent way, right, to divide Americans in the real world. So there were protests in the streets of Houston of Americans on two sides of the street and neither one of the two groups that were protesting against each other knew that the entire thing was instigated by the Kremlin with Facebook pages masquerading as American organizations. And so that was the Russian playbook from 2016. And the biggest failure of American intelligence was not to see the weaponization of social media. It turns out we now know that there were Russian intelligence operatives that came, the Mueller investigation found this, Russian intelligence operatives that traveled to the United States as early as 2014 to learn how to be more effective at that particular part of the campaign. Now, China doesn't even need the Russia playbook to interfere in American elections because Americans are using TikTok and TikTok is owned by ByteDance. And so you can have a Chinese-owned firm which says it's just delivering entertainment, but data shows more and more Americans are getting their news from TikTok to influence what we think without our even knowing it. And you can't use that against those rivals because they don't have a free speech environment to weaponize against them. Right. So we are asymmetrically vulnerable because our freedom of speech enables our adversaries to wage deception operations at scale. I'm not asking you to solve that problem right here and right now, but are America's intelligence agencies set up to deal with that? I think it's a work in progress. This question of how do we deal with cyber threats, whether it's hacking machines or hacking our minds, is a huge challenge and it's constantly evolving. I will say we've seen a pretty dramatic transformation in American government views, strategies, and capabilities over the past several years. And we can see this playing out in Ukraine, right? So one of the reasons why um, Ukraine was able to withstand the Russian cyber attacks at the start of the war was that U.S. Cyber Command and allies and partners worked with the Ukrainians to better defend their cyber networks before disaster struck and to decentralize a lot of their capabilities so they'd be more resilient. So I think U.S. Cyber Command uh, is doing a good job at adapting, but, but the threat landscape moves faster than we do. Amy Ziga, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you. The book's great. It really did open my eyes. It terrified me, but it also gave me a lot to chew on. Thank you so much for joining us in The Bunker. Well, thank you so much for having me in The Bunker. Spies, Lies and Algorithms, The History and Future of American Intelligence is out now in all good bookstores. And listeners, if you're interested in this topic, we've got a fantastic episode of Doomsday Watch covering Black Ops and Secret Wars coming out this coming Monday, or it's out right now if you're a Doomsday Watch Patreon backer. And of course, you can get The Bunker itself early and 
and ad-free when you support us on Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, with additional production from Jack Gerbertson, Kasia Tomashevich, and me, Alex Reese. Our marketing manager was Gina Richard. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.